The last baseball game the Indianapolis Clowns ever played was in the spring of 1989. After five decades of the team's existence, the Clowns, now mostly white, relying heavily on their Clown Act to draw crowds, played a few ball games, and then presumably canceled all upcoming dates. And then they simply went home. Which, at this point, was not Indianapolis or anywhere, really. For the last couple of decades, the Indianapolis Clowns had been purely a barnstorming team. A ragtag group of ballplayers traveling the country playing against any baseball team that would play them from minor league to college teams to American Legion and recreational company outfits. On this final day in 1989, I imagine the players taking lonely Greyhound buses and hitching rides out of some small American town, blooming with yellow flowers and thick green grass. In just a few months, at the top of the ladder in Major League Baseball, the Oakland A's will defeat the San Francisco Giants in the Bay Bridge series. A short commute for both teams, except just before Game 3, a massive earthquake will hit and bring down part of the Bay Bridge. Here in 89, it has been 42 years since Jackie Robinson became the first black ball player to break the color barrier. And it shows. Donnell Dixon, Lance Blankenship, Candy Maldonado, Jose Canseco, Dave Stewart, Mark McGuire, all playing side by side. White, black, Latino, Afro-Latino, pitching and hitting, shooting each other looks and nods. But back to that day earlier in the year, when the Indianapolis Clowns called it quits on their final season. That was the moment that marked the very end of the last Negro League team in America. I'm Phil Corbett, and you are listening to The Wind. The Wind. With Phil Corbett. We'll get back to the Indianapolis Clowns in a moment, but first, I'm going to put on this radio. This is a broadcast of the 1947 World Series. It was recorded on a Wilcox Gay Recordio machine, a home record player which could record audio straight onto a disc from the built-in AM radio receiver. This World Series was recorded directly from WOR Radio in New York. Thank you. 
1947 World Series, like the one in 1989, was a cross-town championship. Two teams from the same metropolitan area, this time the New York Yankees versus the Brooklyn Dodgers. But what set this championship apart is that it was the first World Series with black ballplayers. And so this huge crowd of approximately 70,000 has just stood, all except a handful. Mal Allen and I were just looking down out of the box, and we saw some fellas who can't stand anymore. They're in wheelchairs. They're veterans that have been brought from hospitals here. And one boy, as we looked down, is flat on a stretcher, on a movable stretcher. So people were standing for him, and well, they should. Well, the Dodgers, leading off for the Dodgers as the series swings back to the stadium and uh, makes Brooklyn the visiting ball club is Ed Stanky, hitting number two for Brooklyn. Is, at this moment, the switching is Pee Wee Reese. We thought for a second that the press box had flashed them to do going back to Robinson, who hit number two throughout most of the year, except for a few games, but not Somewhere in that blur of information and steady notes, before the record skips, the announcer quickly mentions someone named Robinson. That would be Jackie Robinson, who, as the first African-American player in Major League Baseball, would advance in that same year all the way to the World Series. In the meantime, the Dodgers also added pitcher Dan Bankhead recruited from the Memphis Red Sox of the Negro American League. Nine hits and three runs, all of them earned. Walking two, striking out six. I love old baseball radio. As an avid listener, somebody who seeks out a sound experience, there is an undeniable vibe that is only found here. Through a crackly radio, a signal sent from a lone announcer in some booth above a ballpark. Up. Around comes the right arm. The first pitch of the game is high inside for ball one. It's a sonic landscape that, for me, transcends time and place. Instead, creating a mythic otherworldly plane. A place not rooted in nation or geography, but somehow native to the airwaves. And there are a lot of broadcasts online. YouTube, archive.org, hold away in odd corners of the internet. You can hear Bob Gibson pitching the 1964 World Series. It's a strike called on the outside corner as Bob Gibson continues to hit the outside corner, keeping that ball away from these left-hand hitters. The fence here in St. Louis. A young Vin Scully announcing a Cubs game. Thank you, Jerry, and good evening, everybody. And despite the fact that I have just knocked a cup of coffee in my lap and a suit that's just out of the cleaners, it's great to be home. So Sandy Koufax, a belated starter with Magley, the announce pitcher, out. And Koufax gets over the strike on one. You can hear all the way back to Babe Ruth in the 1934 All-Star Game. All players may come and they may go, but here is the king of them all in the batter's box. The pitch, it's a strike. But what you cannot find is a single game from the Negro Leagues. 
The Negro Leagues, if you aren't familiar, is an entire parallel history of professional baseball. Black ballplayers had played at the highest levels in the late 1800s, but as America entered the Jim Crow era, the major leagues stopped allowing non-white players on the diamond. Though I understand they didn't have an explicit rule of racial segregation, it operated on a handshake kind of agreement between white team owners, commissioners, and various men in charge. But, of course, the interest and talent of black ballplayers didn't just disappear. So they instead established their own leagues. I pounded the digital pavement, looking for radio recordings of the Negro Leagues, but after talking to collectors and players, I went straight to the source and called the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, which I had the absolute pleasure of visiting this year. As far as the museum or anybody else knew, there are no existing recordings of a Negro League baseball game. In this practice of close listening, i found that sometimes it's the things you don't hear that say the most. Back to the Indianapolis Clowns. Way before they played their final game as a sort of traveling novelty act, this ball club was surprisingly one of the classic Negro League teams. Digging through the league stats and game accounts, walking through the museum, the Clowns stand alongside all of the great teams. But though their heyday was as a formidable Negro League team, where they ended up in the 1980s does make sense if you look further back. They started years before as a vaudeville baseball team in Depression-era Florida. They started back in the 30s, and they played independently in Miami as Ethiopian Clowns. Then they joined the Negro American League as the Cincinnati Clowns. And then they relocated to Indianapolis, which is where they stayed. This is Kim Green. Uh, the company name is Black. It's actually an acronym. It stands for Bases Loaded, Authentic Clothing, and Caps with a K. Kim's company makes a line of jerseys, jackets, hats, and tapestries that celebrate the history of black baseball. She also makes educational YouTube videos. And on her website, next to the Kansas City Monarchs and the Birmingham Black Barons, you'll see a jersey from the Indianapolis Clowns. They recognized early that if you really wanted to draw big crowds, you had to be able to do more than just play great baseball. You really had to be able to give a show. As probably caught your ear, the team started as the Miami Ethiopian Clowns. The early clown routines were often informed by racial stereotypes and drew discomfort and criticism from other black players and sports writers. The perception of the clowns were, if you look at media, especially in that time, um, or if you look at plays, Black people in general were always, it was an Amos and Andy kind of, you know, all you can do is, you know, uh, dance and sing. You're just known for, for your entertainment. You're not actually known for your, for your intelligence, for your abilities. And they felt that the Clowns was one of the teams that was just basically profiting off of the conception that people already have. 
This type of racially tinged entertainment, tracing back to black performers doing blackface minstrel shows, is deeply complicated. Black folks performing derisive stereotypes of themselves in order to make a living in a world set up to deny them that very opportunity. And the early clowns were not the only white-owned team doing this kind of act. There was a team called the uh, Zulu Cannibal Giants. They would wear grass skirts and they would paint their face and they would, you know, run around the bases. And it was just, we were working, and I say, we as a people, you know, Black people were working so hard to be recognized for, um, for the talent and for our abilities that to be, they almost felt it was being, you, the abilities were being marginalized. The Zulu cannibal giants folded after about four years in 1937. And a few years after that is where the clowns seemed to disassociate with this type of entertainment and bounce off in this fascinating new trajectory. The team, now owned by a Jewish booking agent and ball club executive Sid Pollock, they win a national tournament in Denver, Colorado. A couple years later, they moved to Cincinnati, changed their name, and soon thereafter, they joined the Negro American League. In 1950, they would win that league's championship. In short, through the 40s and 50s, they become a damn good ball team. And during the mid-1940s, the clowning seemed to largely move off the field as a mascot or a gimmick. But even that wasn't so simple. Because during this period, they were joined by a man called Goose Tatum. And Tatum was the clown prince of baseball. There's this old film of him on the diamond, which I'll post on the website. It shows Goose Tatum moving like nobody I have ever seen move before. He's this tall, lanky man with long arms, warming up in a bucket hat with a cigarette, juggling the baseball, hiding it behind his knee, practicing a stutter step move on first base. Then the cigarette is gone, he's wearing a ball cap, and he's fielding real baseballs with this wild fluidity catching and throwing the ball without even lifting his arms above his waist. At one point, he tags the bag just before the runner's cleat, hands the ball to the umpire looking surprised, and struts off the field, casually dropping his glove in the dirt near the base, where it will sit until the next inning. Tatum blurred the line between player and entertainer. Many of his teammates were straight ballplayers. Then the guys in the stands and the clown outfits were pure entertainers, but Tatum forged a way to be both. Uh, one of the great players, I'll say player entertainers they had was Goose Tatum. And some people have heard of him because later on he went to play with the Harlem Globetrotters. After finding out about this baseball team, seeing their jersey in the Negro League Baseball Museum, I couldn't think of anything like it. And then I saw them referred to as the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. I think the Globetrotters, the famous entertainment basketball team, are a good touchstone to truly understand the clowns, both through their similarities and key differences. 
These teams, using physical comedy and virtuosic skill, could really draw and hold a crowd. But while the Globetrotters were playing every game against the Washington Generals, a sort of straight man basketball team, the Clowns did not have a foil. They were playing real teams and winning real games in the real world, even when some of their players were actual clowns. It's honestly hard to wrap your head around, and I think that is part of the team's DNA. They were the clowns, after all, named for an ancient cultural archetype that's meant to play with that which is socially uncertain. This archetype dates back to at least ancient Egypt, as a comic human prism that can illuminate and separate layers of culture, and make fun of that culture's failings. The sun shines bright on the county stadium in Milwaukee in the heart of America's Dairyland. But there's a danger of a Yankee storm brewing, and the Braves, down 2-1 to one of the Yankees, are getting back near the wall. They used to say of the Braves when they represented... The 1957 World Series. The New York Yankees again, but this time in Milwaukee, playing the Milwaukee Braves. Nobody is out. The bases are even up at two apiece. In 1957, Hank Aaron, or referred to here as Henry Aaron, slugged his Milwaukee Braves into the World Series. Henry Aaron just picked up his second home of the series. This coming with a couple of men on base, and the Braves lead the Yankees 3-1. Aaron was one of the best hitters ever, and over the course of his career, he would break or shatter many of Babe Ruth's records. He eventually set the record for all-time home runs at 755, one that would stand for decades. And though his first season in pro baseball was a few years after Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers, the Negro Leagues were still operating. And that is where Aaron started. In 1951, he signed his first pro baseball contract with the Indianapolis Clowns. He was drafted by the team just out of high school. I really don't know how I made it. You know, I, I, I remember my oldest sister who's no longer with us and my mother. They walked with me, walked with me to a train station, put me on the train, and I had a little bag about with one pair of pants, and my mother had fixed me two sandwiches. And I had, I think it was $2 in my pocket. And she told me this is all she had. And my sister told me, said, just do the best you can, you know. And so we got, I got on a train. Uh, yes, I was nervous, scared, and didn't know where I was going, really. I'd never been on the train before in my life. Hank Aaron, as a young man, was on the team for just a few months before the Clowns sold his contract to the Milwaukee Braves in the major leagues for $10,000. During this period, after integration, 
Major League Baseball began scouring the vast talent pool that was the Negro Leagues. Once Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, the talent from the Negro League went to the Major Leagues, and ultimately that's what caused the demise of the league. Though there is no clear single date when the Negro Leagues ended, baseball historians put it around 1960. as the biggest names in African-American baseball were invited into the major leagues. Many teams simply folded, or became barnstorming outfits, not beholden to any league, but playing wherever they could. Which is exactly what the Clowns did. After winning the championship in 1954, they left the league and hit the road. After the break... The Clowns signed the first three women to play pro baseball and become a full-time barnstorming outfit. We'll hear about that in detail from Indianapolis Clown Jay Valentine. The barnstorming, basically, we played anybody and everybody. Whoever wanted to play us, we would go and play them. For the first time ever, The Wind now has merch. Head to thewind.org store and check out everything we got. You will find stickers, mystery cassette tapes, two t-shirt designs, the long sleeve throat forest shirt in white and a short sleeve snake shirt in black. The throat forest shirt was designed by friend of the show Anton Anger and I think it turned out really well. And the snake is based on a little garter snake that lives near my desk in the summer. You'll also find digital downloads in the official Wind Listener patch. So head to thewind.org store or click the link in the episode description. When Hank Aaron was picked up by the Braves, the Clowns filled his slot by breaking a different barrier. Replacing Aaron at second base was pro baseball's first female player, Tony Stone. Stone played with the Clowns for a season before leaving for the legendary Negro League team, the Kansas City Monarchs. She was replaced on the Clowns by the second and third women to play pro baseball. Connie Morgan at second base, and Mammy Peanut Johnson pitching. Johnson went 33-8, and eight, meaning she won 80% of the games she pitched. In the 1950s, with Aaron, then Tony Stone, this is the point that the clowns and the players were most separate. Though Goose Tatum effortlessly blurred this line, it seems that this period was pretty straight baseball. Here is Mammy Peanut Johnson explaining the breakdown. We had three clowns that traveled with us, that clowned in the stands while the games were going on, 
and, and, and after seven inning stretch and whatever, and the clowns would go up in the stands. So there were still clowns with the Indianapolis clowns. These guys in costume would mainly step onto the field during the seventh inning stretch when most of the team was taking a break. Two or three of the real ball players would join them, and they'd play a game of shadow ball. Shadow ball was a sort of vaudevillian act where the guys would play a wild game of catch, oscillating between fast and slow motion, with tricks and falls, tossing a ball with incredible speed and dexterity, breaking the laws of physics, because in shadow ball, there is no baseball. It's all mimed. And, uh, you know, they're pretending they're throwing the ball and so forth and so on. And that's where the clowning came in. But we didn't do any clowning. We played ball. The newspaper articles about these first three women in baseball often have a sexist, joking attitude. Despite all three of them playing well and holding their own, many saw it as just another publicity stunt for a team with a history of showmanship. But if the team saw it as a joke, they didn't let on. Because in true clown fashion, it was hard to tell what was supposed to be a joke and what was not. Regardless, this seemed to allow them to break a barrier that no one else had touched. After winning the Negro American League championship in 1954, the Clowns left the league and began barnstorming full-time. Though the team moved from Miami to Cincinnati, then to Indianapolis, then Buffalo, and eventually Muscatine, Iowa, they kept the Indianapolis name. Because from here on out, all season, they'd live on the road. So much that sometimes they'd bat first in Indianapolis as the away team. This transition seemed to mark another shift in trajectory. Though they continued to sign serious and legendary players, even briefly hiring one of the greatest pitchers of all time, Satchel Paige, out of retirement, they began to reintroduce more showmanship. And this seemed like a matter of survival. In the mid-1960s, after the fall of the Negro Leagues, owner Sid Pollock sold his remaining shares in the Clowns to Ed Hammond. Hammond was a pro ball player in the 20s, and he had slowly become the team's manager. Under his ownership, the Clowns became a pretty shoestring operation, managing to squeak out a resilient existence as an unaffiliated ball team during an era of serious consolidation. What was once a sprawling and diverse landscape of smaller regional leagues beneath the majors, a network of decentralized ownership, rich social ecosystems, became a more corporate and vertical model. Right. Correct. Yeah. You had semi-pro teams, you know. Um, but yeah, we were one of, we were the last Indianapolis Clowns was the last of the barnstorming teams, the last of the Negro League team. This is Jay Valentine. Jay joined the Clowns at a high school after a friend at spring training told him about this traveling team. It was basically like a one-day tryout 
they only Indianapolis clowns only carry 12, 12 ball players um, because we traveled in a checker arrow limo. So there's only the 12 passenger. The team Jay joined was a little later. After Hammond, it was owned by George Long. But it was still operated under the model forged by Ed Hammond. Hammond, in addition to being a pro ball player, was also a baseball clown. He had impressed audiences for years with trick pitches, somehow able to throw blistering strikes behind his back and through his legs. And from his experience with barnstorming shoestring baseball, he formulated a new business model that would allow this Negro League team to continue well beyond the Negro League era. In short, the clowns would cut costs and only carry 11 or 12 players, the absolute bare minimum. They'd play smaller towns, rely heavily on publicity around the clown show and gimmicks, and they'd make the real money by acting as a traveling farm team. After all, the team sold Hank Aaron's contract in the 50s for $10,000. So Hammond would bank on this scouting model, using the clowning as a vehicle to financially sustain the team while trying to pick up young talent and push them up into the major leagues. This is how the team would operate for the rest of its existence and how it operated when Jay Valentine joined in 1977. Um, yeah, we traveled 28 states in three months, played about 70 ball games uh, in three months. If you didn't hit, George Long would send you home. He, he, he gave us like $5 a day for meal money. The barnstorming, basically, we played anybody and everybody. Whoever wanted to play us, we would go and play them. And we just traveled throughout the South, the Midwest, part of the upper Midwest. And uh, we played all comers. Yeah, I mean, because the team at that point had existed for, you know, like you said, 48 seasons for decades. And it kind of had like a heyday in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, Hank Aaron played for him. Later, Satchel Paige played for him. I mean, what was it like by the time you joined in, you know, the mid to late 70s? Well, we were, it was all integrated then. I mean, we had, you know, we were, we were the black ball players, white ball players, um, Hispanic ball players. Like I said, we only carry 12 guys. In addition to the $5 a day for meal money, Jay would make a few extra bucks by joining what they called the act. The clown's shadow ball routine was alive and well. And since Hammond took over, he and a cast of new clowns and ballplayers like Bobo Smalls and Birmingham Sam invented new clown acts. Jay fit right in. I mean, I, I actually majored in theater and communications, but uh, Birmingham Sam basically kind of like took me under his wing. He always called me Junior because he said Thatcher, when he played with the clowns and sat, played with Satch, Satchel Page always called him Junior. So he like took me, you know, and, and called me Junior, and we were like always we roommates together on the on the road. Jay would join Birmingham Sam for the shadow ball routine, but he'd also join on a variety of other comedy sketches. We would also have uh, the rowboat act, which me, Birmingham Sam and myself would do. 
and that was like we were in a rowboat, you know, using two bats like we're ro- as oars, and we're rowing, and then it, uh, we capsized the boat. Before we went out and did it, I had my mouth full of water, and like when I'd like start to drown or whatever, and he would pick up one leg and I'd squirt water. He'd pick up my other leg and I'd squirt water. He'd pick up my arm. I'd squirt water, my other arm squirt water, and then he'd step on my stomach and the rest of the water would come out and I'd jump up and chase him across the field. In addition to the shows on the field, the clowns, especially Bobo and Birmingham Sam, knew how to work a crowd in the stands. There's times where they would go off into the stands and mess with the, the spectators in the stands and have fun with them, just like the Globetrotters would do. And then we would we still had to play, so there's times we're playing with just like seven ball players on the field because they're up in the stands playing, messing with people and, and entertaining. Throughout the years, a few of the clown acts would become legendary. The kind of legend that's slippery and gets ascribed to multiple players depending on who's telling it. Goose Tatum and King Tut. Nature Boy Williams, Bobo Smalls, Birmingham Sam, they'd work on and perfect tricks from the guys that came before them. One crowd favorite was when the pitcher was on fire, he'd start sending his own fielders to the dugout. So he'd throw a strike and tell the left fielder to leave the field. Another strike or two, then the rest of the outfield and the infield until it was just him and the catcher and a desperate batter with an empty field, unable to hit. And Bobo, he could, he could line up three guys, and he'd take, a, he'd take uh, three baseballs, and he could throw them and pitch them and throw them to the three guys that are catching. Throws three strikes with one hand. Yes. There is no separating the history of baseball from the history of race in America. Sports and entertainment, for whatever reason, are often played on the front lines of shifting culture. Jackie Robinson's entry into the major leagues was not just a moment for baseball, but a moment for the country. The Indianapolis Clowns played on this front line, too. They hired their first white player, in 1968. At that point, they were the last Negro League team in America, and well past integration, they continued to face racism. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The Ku Klux Klan came out. uh, We were in, like, Johnson City, Tennessee, um, and uh, we were playing, we played a doubleheader there um, against one of their local teams. And, you know, there's a lot of hecklers, you know, that were kind of trying to steal our show from us, you know, because they know we're clowning. And then at the end of the game, when it, when it got dark and at the end of the game, when we're ready to leave the ballpark, you know, here's guys that are got their hoods, got their hoods on and like little torches in their hand. And, you know, and I know it's the same guys that were heckling when we were playing. We dealt with some of it in Smithville, South Carolina, um, Wilmington, North Carolina. We were denied a hotel because we were black. And uh, 
And at that time, George Long, our owner, only traveled with us about two weeks out of the whole season. We pull into Wilmington, North Carolina at like, it was like oh, midnight, 1 a.m. He goes in to get the rooms, to check in the rooms, and we were like coming into the hotel. And the guy at the desk asked him, you know, are these guys with you? And he says, yeah, it's part of my, part of my ball team. <laughs> Uh, George had he had a uh, he's kind of a hillbilly kind of guy. He, he goes, well, these guys can't stay here. He goes, your other your other guys can stay here, but they can't stay here. So he's like, well, forget it. And we drove like two hours until we found another place to stay, only to come back to Wilmington that day and play ball. And through all of this, the clowns would keep playing and keep clowning. Uh, it didn't bother me in the act at all. The only time I had an effect with it was either after the game or when when I'm up to bat and there's guys in the back behind the backstop that are, you know, using the N word and calling you different names and that, you know. So you just kind of look back at them, and then after the game, there's guys that those same guys, some of them will come up and like want to like say, "Hey, nice game. You guys are really funny," or whatever. You know, you know, I I didn't kibitz with them or talk to them after the game. Jackie Robinson faced heckling, taunts, people throwing things at him on the field. Hank Aaron received a considerable amount of serious death threats as he approached Babe Ruth's home run record. And though both were civil rights activists off the field, on the field, they let the bat and the ball do the talking. They defied the country's racism by being undeniably damn good baseball players. And as I've learned about the clowns, what strikes me is that they did let the ball do the talking, sometimes in the form of demolishing local teams, but at other points, it was an invisible ball, or three balls at once, a comical hesitation pitch, winning and losing with hilarious grace. And then when I found out that Hank Aaron played for the clowns, Satchel Page played for the clowns, along with a host of others, um, it's like, wow, yeah, we're the globe trotters of baseball, you know. So then it really stuck in where, hey, you know, we we can always clown, you know. We can make a we can make a mistake and 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 still act like it's part of the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like everything I've read about the clowns, everything I've heard about you guys, like there is just such a interesting spirit to the team. Like it was something that really seemed organic and natural and that it just seemed to make sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. We were, we were definitely uh, a different breed. A few years after Jay Valentine left, George Long sold the team to a guy named Dave Clark. Clark was a polio survivor and also played first base which he'd man on crutches. Under Clark, the team operated on a similar model as the decades before, but they leaned more heavily into clowning with colorful costumes and props. And though it worked for a few more seasons, the world of baseball had just changed so dramatically around them. This team that forged an odd path over many decades... I think persevered largely because of its DNA, and really, in part, its name. 
They were clowns, laughing around the edges of difficult circumstance, consolidation in a changing country. They played on a threshold, and that let them become a great team, through which would pass some of the best ball players ever. And then they'd fall back on sight gags. It let them exist and thrive. After 53 years of baseball in 1989, the Indianapolis Clowns played their last game. It's a shame that we can't hear radio broadcasts from the Negro Leagues, that we can't tune in and feel the full power of Satchel Paige in his prime, or the hundreds, thousands of other incredible ballplayers who, in the face of injustice and racism, kept playing and playing damn well. What I would love to hear is how some lone announcer calling a game on a hot summer night would have described the Indianapolis Clowns. How he could have brought them alive. Which parts he would speak with a straight face, and how surreal that would sound, sputtering across the airwaves and through the speakers of an AM radio. Tapping into some distant world where the diamond can exist as both a real place and as a chattering static dream transmitted by invisible wave omnipresent, a sound you can pluck from thin air. To play us out is the final moments of the oldest surviving radio broadcast of a full baseball game. This is from the All-Star Game of 1934. Last half of the ninth inning, you know, the National League is two runs behind and they have one run on the bag. Billy Herman at second base, and Chuck Bryan on his long-distance hitter at the plate. Mel Harder is pitching, Cochran is catching, it's stretched, and here it is! It's a ball! A fastball is high outside, and the count is strike two, and ball one. Not a single fan has left this ballpark unless it was a doctor or something this afternoon, because anything can happen at any time. Strike two, ball on the pitch, as it drives down first base way, Terry fumbles the ball, crosses it to Harder, he is out of the close play and the ball game is over in favor of the American League by a score of 9-7. to seven. This is Tom Manning saying good afternoon from the Polo Grounds in New York, and here is Graham McNamee. Come in, Graham. Thanks, Tom. There are so many features in this ball game that we won't try to go into them at all. It was 9-7 to seven in favor of the American League over the Nationals in the All-Star game played at the Polo Grounds in New York City. Uh, it's time to go now. The crowd is thrown out on the field. All just getting to the exit, and so will we. Goodbye. Produced by me, Phil Corbett. 
This season was made with support from the Google Podcast Creator Program through PRX. Links, photos, live show calendar, and more at thewind.org. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app. And if you want to help out, become a patron. Head to patreon.com slash thewind or click the link on our website. Set up a monthly donation to keep this thing going. Thank you to Jay Valentine and Kim Green for speaking to me for this story. You can find Kim's web store at blackb4u.com. That's black, the letter B, the number four, the letter U.com. Also, thank you to Alex Painter for connecting me with Jay, and thanks to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. The music in this episode was a few tracks from the public domain, including a tune from Scott Joplin. Then, baseball organ music from Anthony O'Radnick, Baby Steps by Hannah Lee, and finally DeVille by Eclept Insan, who also made this track, which is called Seek and the Road Shall Become Visible. If you want to check out the brand new Wind merch, head to thewind.org slash store and make sure to share an episode with a friend. Thank you for being here and keep listening. Listening.